0: As I mentioned, as I mentioned uh, earlier, we are coming together to study specifically part two of our four-point study, as we're looking at our position and our word. And we saw that there are four things that conduct the life of God's remnant people in these last days. Those four things starts with what? Holy convocation. What came after holy convocation? Sounds like nobody knows. All right. If you forget, just remember it's Leviticus 23, verses 27 to 32. And brothers and sisters, you're going to want to make sure that you understand your work. You want to make sure that you understand what you and I are supposed to be doing right now, so that way we can really make sure that we are a people prepared to meet our God. Remember, we are not doing any of these things in order to merit Any special favor with God, amen? We are doing these things because of the relationship we have with Christ. It is our desire we do these things based on a love for Jesus, amen? All right, so therefore we want to make sure that we rightly understand this study. Now, this study is going to be Afflict Our Souls. And you're going to find that this is going to be a most important study because afflicting our souls has much meaning And we're going to have to look in the Word of God and let the Word of God be our guide to help us rightly understand how to afflict our souls. And I want us to do some things as we prepare to go into this study. The first thing I want us to do is turn our Bibles to the book of Leviticus chapter 23. In Leviticus, the 23rd chapter, Leviticus chapter 23, you'll remember that the Bible was making something very clear to you and I as God's people that we want to make sure that we understand it. In verse 27 of Leviticus 23, the Bible says something very important. And before we go into that, let's just have a brief word of prayer as we approach the Lord's throne. I'm going to go, um, go ahead and kneel. And if you are able to and would like to, you can join with me. Otherwise, you can reverently bow your heads where you are and let us kneel and pray together. Our loving Father, we are grateful once again for the opportunity to come together, to press together, and to study, to show ourselves approved unto God, that we can be workmen as well as workwomen. We can need not be ashamed, for we have rightly divided your words of truth. I pray that you would please first forgive us of our sins, and that you would abide with us in a very special way, that as we once again look at this very special topic dealing with our position and our work, that as we deal with this topic of the affliction of one's soul that you will truly open our eyes and help us to behold wondrous things out of thy law. And bless us, we ask, dear God, and we give ourselves to you, and may you truly be glorified in all that is said and done. In this study together, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In Leviticus, the 23rd chapter, you'll find that the Bible tells us in verse 27... And 28, what God's people should be doing while the high priest was in the most holy place. The Bible says in verse 27, "Also on the 10th day of this seventh month, there shall be a day of atonement. It shall be an holy convocation unto you, you shall afflict your souls, and offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. And you shall do no work in that same day, for it is a day of atonement to make an atonement for you before the Lord your God." Now I want you to look carefully at verse 29. The Bible says in verse 29, For whatsoever soul it be that shall not be afflicted in that same day, what will happen to him? He shall be cut off from among his people. The word of God is making it clear to you and I that this is very serious. And therefore, we're going to really take a look at this topic of afflicting one's soul, seeking to understand what does it mean, how do we apply it even in 2011, bordering on 2012, how do we make this thing practical in my day-to-day life? Now, as we prepare to go into this study, there's some very key things I need to make you aware of. There are many things in this world that are needed. Many things. If you read in the book Ministry of Healing, page 143, you would see that one of the great things that the world needs right now is a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what it says in Ministry of Healing, page 143. It says that the great need of the world right now is that they need a revelation of Jesus Christ. And I want to make that clear that it is not saying that it needs somebody to talk about Jesus. It's saying that it needs a revelation of Jesus Christ. People need to see you and I and say in their minds and hearts, when I see you, I see Jesus. Yeah. Brothers and sisters, that is. The, do you know as a husband and as a father that that's the greatest goal of my life? I'm serious. Even before I meet the brethren, as much as I love the brethren, the most important thing to me is that when I'm the father of four children. And I'm also the husband of one wife. Amen. And you will find that when I commune with my wife, it is imperative to me that when she looks at her husband, that she says, I can see Jesus in him. It's imperative to me. Do you know, brothers and sisters, that I would throw away PTH ministries? I would lay this ministry down that God has given unto me if my wife said that I don't see Jesus in you. If my children were to say, I don't see Jesus in you, Daddy. Brothers and sisters, if it gets to a point, heaven forbid that ministers get so caught up into preaching and teaching doctrines and all these things, but yet will not live these truths in their day-to-day life. The greatest need of the world right now is a revelation of Jesus Christ. People need to be able to see you and see me, and when they say, I see you, they say, I see Jesus. That's the sweetest thing that somebody could ever say. You know, May May 25th that just passed this year, my wife and I celebrated 14 years of marriage. And brothers and sisters, it's been a wonderful, high, and holy time. And you know, when my wife and I, when, when we had our anniversary, brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, when we had our anniversary, when we went out, I did not go out and spend all this money on a whole bunch of empty, materialistic stuff, or any of those things. My wife and I, we went out somewhere, we found a nice, quiet place, and I looked my bride in the eyes, and I said, honey, It's now 14 years of marriage. And my question to you is this. Have I been more of a man of God and a husband of God to you than I was when we celebrated 13 years of marriage? I wanted to assess and make sure that the goal is being hit. You know, we talk so much about investigative judgments, brothers and sisters. But I'm telling you, one of the things that we must apply in the investigative judgment is to make sure that we do not assume that we're great husbands when we're not. To assume that we are great fathers when we're not. To assume that we're great children when we're not. And to assume that we're great wives when we're not. This investigative judgment principle, brothers and sisters, should take place even in the home where I can investigate, my wife can investigate, and we can all ask ourselves and say, are we truly representing that which we profess on a daily basis? Because nobody on planet Earth knows me like my wife. Nobody on planet Earth knows me like my children. And when my wife and my children can say, Daddy and husband, I see Jesus in you, I can then say, praise God. I've often had people call me a man of God simply because I preach the word of God from God's pulpit with conviction. Brothers and sisters, devils can do that. I want to make that clear to you. I'm serious. Devils can preach powerful sermons. Because all the devil wants is for people to hear a deep, high truth that they will not live in their daily lives. Satan says it does not matter. I got him anyhow. But when somebody preaches the truth based on conviction of that which they are living, brothers and sisters, there's a power that comes with that truth that has the ability to convert the most hardest hearts. And that's my prayer every day is, Lord, teach me how to be a minister like that. Teach me how to minister and give the gospel in such a way that I will never preach a truth that I myself am not practicing, but I will preach that which you have given me to first practice in my heart, in my home, and then I can faithfully give it to the people. And brothers and sisters, that has to be your determination. Amen? So the greatest need that the world needs right now is a revelation of Jesus Christ. But do you know what I want to complement that quotation with? It's another little quotation from the book Education, page 57. You know what it says in Education 57? It says, the greatest want of the world is the want of men. You see, it's one thing to say a revelation of Jesus, but I like it when the Bible can now, or when inspiration can now give us a picture of what Jesus looks like when he walks on this earth. And one of the pictures that that inspiration gives us is it says, the greatest want of the world is the want of men. Men who will not be bought or sold. Men who in their inmost souls are true and honest. Men who do not fear to call sin by its right name. Men who are as true to duty as the needle to the pole. Men who will stand for the right, though the heavens may fall. You know, in Adventism, brothers and sisters, sometimes it can get so dangerous that if we're not careful, we can start as ministers of the gospel that we can be more concerned about our ministries and the success thereof, than given the people the plain, thus saith the Lord. And you will find that often it is hard to find straight truth because individuals in many cases, thank God not all cases, but in many cases there are too many individuals that are worried about their ministries and their positions and all these other things and will not tell the people as it is in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. May God shut down my ministry if I ever get to that point. Brothers and sisters, we are living in the very final movement movements of earth's history. And when I read about that life of John the Baptist, I saw John the Baptist go before kings and leaders and individuals in the laity, and he would call sin by its right name. And do you know what inspiration says? Inspiration says that Seventh-day Adventists are to give a more pointed message than even John the Baptist. This is not a time to get more watered down. This is the time to give a straight testimony. And a straight testimony is not to condemn. In fact, go to the book of John chapter 3. You see, when we talk about the straight testimony, a lot of times people think that that means the more you slap people up with the word of God, that you beat them up with the Bible and you show them how, how ugly and wicked they are and make them feel hopeless. No, brothers and sisters. No, no. Thank God Jesus didn't do that. Jesus called sin by its right name. Make no mistake about it. But I want you to understand something. The purpose of pointing out sin, is not to condemn. It's not to go to individuals and try to condemn them. First of all, I have no heaven or hell to put you in, first of all. You have no heaven or hell to put me in. That's why I'm not afraid of you and you shouldn't be afraid of me. Amen? Amen. But what we should be doing is iron sharpening iron. We should be sharpening and strengthening one another, pressing together by the grace of God so we can make it together. Because there's some final things that's getting ready to take place in this world that's going to take the majority of the people in this world and in the church as an overwhelming surprise. And God's desire is that you and I don't fall into that trap. And so when you hear truth, understand that even sometimes when we hear cutting truth and it seems that, oh no, my sins are being exposed, I want you to understand that God doesn't condemn you. Not immediately. You want to know why? Notice what the Bible says in John chapter 3. In John, the third chapter, notice what the Bible says in verse 18. The Bible says in John 3, 18, He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now, look at verse 19 carefully. And this is the condemnation. That light is come into the world, and what happened? And men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. There is going to be some light shed in this study, brothers and sisters. That when we shed this light, you and I are going to have an opportunity. When that light comes to us, we can either do one of two things. We can either hate the light and turn away from it. And if we do that, the Bible says, then condemnation comes. Or we could love the light and appreciate it and accept it. And Jesus says, there will never be condemnation to any such person. And so, brothers and sisters, as we prepare to study some light, not new light, no, not new light, but as we prepare to study some light, I want you to understand that the purpose of the light is that we might come to Jesus. We live in a world of darkness, and we need a light to help us see where Christ is so that we can walk in that straight, narrow path and meet him. So I want you to see something that the Bible brings out to you and I as we deal with this topic of the affliction of one's soul. Now, the first thing we're going to need to do is understand what does it mean to afflict What does affliction even mean? How can we help understand the purpose of afflicting one's soul? What does that mean? How do we make that practical? You know what I'm saying? So therefore, what we're going to do now is we're going to go to the book of Ezra chapter 8. We need to find out what does it mean to afflict one's soul. The Bible makes it very clear that we must do this. It is one of the works that God's people were supposed to be doing while the high priest was in the most holy place. And the Bible says in the book of Ezra chapter 8, now there's two parts to this point. One part I'm going to deal with today, the other part I'm going to deal with tomorrow. I'm going to show you tomorrow how health reform and the affliction of one's soul and the experience of righteousness by faith all go hand in hand. We're going to touch on that tomorrow. But today I want us to look at it. Ezra chapter 8 and verse 21. If you're there, please say amen. Amen. The Bible says in Ezra the 8th chapter and the 21st verse, The Bible says, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might do what? Afflict ourselves. So are they afflicting themselves? Yes. Now, according to the verse, why are they afflicting themselves? What does the verse say? It says that we might afflict ourselves before our God to do what? To seek of him a right way. Is that right? So therefore, brothers and sisters, the purpose of one afflicting himself is that he can seek of God a right way. Now, this makes perfect sense because, brothers and sisters, when the high priest enters into the most holy place, what is taking place? What is taking place? Huh? Judgment judgment is taking place. Final decisions are being made on behalf of those who are on the outside of that most holy place. So it would make natural sense that when the high priest went in to do that final work in the plan of salvation, that those on the outside would be searching their hearts to seek God's way and make sure that their lives are in line with God's ways. Are you following? You know, there's a wonderful little book called Gospel Workers. Gospel workers, page 100. And in gospel workers, page 100, it totally coincides with 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Go to 2 Corinthians 13, and let me show you what it says in 2 Corinthians 13, and then I'm going to show you how it ties in exactly with gospel workers, page 100. You see, I never have a problem quoting Ellen White. You want to know the biggest reason why? Because I've learned that Ellen White's writings, the spirit of prophecy, I have learned that they are like a magnifying glass. Now, when I was a child, I loved to play with magnifying glasses. And I've learned that the writings of Sister White are like a magnifying glass. When you take a magnifying glass, does it put something there that wasn't there? No. When you take a magnifying glass and put it on something, does it take away something that was there? No. When you use a magnifying glass, the magnifying glass only makes clearer that which was already there. Is that right? That's the writings of Sister White. Sister White has brought forth no new light. She has not brought forth any additional knowledge. Brothers and sisters, she simply magnifies that which the Bible was already saying. God gave us the glasses of his word so that we can understand Bible truth. But because of the loud to see and effect of blindness, you and I need bifocals. We need the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. We need both of them. So now that we can see clearly what inspiration is saying, Amen. And so notice what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5, notice how God brings this thought out because it totally coincides with the principle of afflicting one's soul. It says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, it says, Examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith. It says, Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you except ye be reprobates. The Bible says that we should examine ourselves to make sure that we're in the faith. And the reason why is because in Romans chapter 9 and verse 6, the Bible says not all who say they are Israel are Israel. And brothers and sisters, I can promise you, not everybody who says they're Seventh-day Adventists are Seventh-day Adventists. Seventh-day Adventists function by a certain type of behavior. And you and I are going to examine ourselves to see, is my life in line with the SDA behavior? because it's the behavior that tells on the character that tells who we're connected to and so it is that I want you to see something now we see this that Paul calls us to examine ourselves now in gospel workers page 100 it says guard jealously your time for prayer the searching of the scriptures and the examination of your heart guard it jealously you ever been jealous about something Do you remember how you behaved when you was jealous about something? You were protective over it. Is that right? You were so protective over that thing that you were jealous about that sometimes you were prepared to get violent if necessary if someone got too close to that thing that you prized. Is that right? Brothers and sisters, inspiration says guard jealously your time for prayer, the searching of the scriptures, and the examination of your heart. Examining our hearts, brothers and sisters, is part of our daily work. Why? Because as inspiration says, it says examine yourself whether you be in the faith. It is one thing to have your name on the church books. It is a whole different thing to have your name in the book of life. There are many individuals who have their names on the church books and the church rolls here and heaven knows nothing about their names. Brothers and sisters, that's a tragedy. You know, I've been part of this movement now for 19 years. And as far as I'm concerned, that's a long time. And brothers and sisters, I just, I, 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 I loathe, I fear the thought that could I have been part of a movement for 19 years and have made all these uh, uh, changes and adjustments and all these different experiences in my life just to be lost anyhow? Some of you have been in this movement even longer than that. Amen. Brothers and sisters, this is not a time to say that we got, we've come too far to turn back now. So therefore, God says, examine yourself. Make sure that this thing is real. Make sure that this walk that you're professing, this religion and this movement that you're a part of, make sure, examine yourself, check yourself and ask yourself, Lord, is this thing real or have I just been occupying space and time? And This is why, brothers and sisters, afflicting of one's soul was so important. Once you come to that holy convocation and everybody is helping every, uh, every individual maintain their focus and get their focus right and keep everything on the straight and narrow path, that next step was, all right, folks, let's start examining our hearts. Let's find out if there be any wicked way in me. And if there is, please lead me in the way everlasting. Now, if we're going to examine ourselves, brothers and sisters, we have to understand that what am I examining myself or what am I comparing my life to? Because if you're going to examine yourself, that means that you have to have a standard of some kind. And that standard that you and I have is what we're supposed to examine ourselves and see is my life in line with that standard. Are you following So therefore, when the Bible says that we are to examine ourselves to make sure that we are in the faith, that means that I must understand some type of standard that has been set before me, particularly that which relates to the judgment, I'm being judged. So would it not make sense that I need to find out from the Bible, what is it that God, what's the standard that God is using to judge me by so that I can examine myself and make sure that my life is in line with it? Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. But before I show you what we are to examine or compare ourselves with, let me show you what not to compare yourselves with. Go to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 10. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, this is imperative. Let's make sure that we understand that we do not compare ourselves with this. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And when you get there, please say amen. Amen. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, it says in verse 12, it says in Second Corinthians 10 and verse 12, For we dare not make ourselves of the number, or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. But they measuring themselves by themselves, and comparing themselves among themselves, are wise, are not wise. Brothers and sisters, while it is true that we must examine ourselves and we must look for the right comparisons, the one thing God says is that you're not my standard and I'm not yours. You and I will be doing nothing but wasting our time if we are comparing ourselves among ourselves. And there's so many of us that do this on so many different levels. There are ministers who will compare themselves to other ministers so that they can mimic and sound like them, preach like them, and teach like them. Who says that some sinner is worthy to be compared to? It's just sinner comparing themselves to sinner. What's the point? Today, you got individuals, if we talk about dress reform, individuals say, well, the pastor's wife dressed this way. Who said you were supposed to compare yourself to the pastor's wife? We say, oh, we need to practice health reform. We need to change our diet. Oh, but I saw the pastor eating fish. Who says that the pastor was the one you were supposed to compare yourself to? We say, oh, it looks like we're losing our young people. Let's go ahead and compare ourselves to the first day churches and see how they're bringing young people in. Who said that God was supposed to use the remnant to compare ourselves to Babylon? God makes it clear. He says, listen, those who compare themselves among themselves, they testify that they are not wise. And so while we are examining ourselves, God wants to make it clear. Don't waste your time comparing yourself to other people. Don't waste your time. Because I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, so many times we hold God's standards low because of what somebody else is doing. Well, they're doing this and they're having success. They're doing this and they're doing okay. Surely it must be right. God says lack of wisdom. And brothers and sisters, God says, do not compare yourself among yourselves. So therefore, if we are not to examine ourselves, comparing ourselves to other people, then what exactly is it that we should compare ourselves to? Notice what the Bible says in James chapter 2. James chapter 2. In the judgment hour, brothers and sisters, upon which we are in right now and towards the very end of it, God tells us exactly what we should be examining ourselves and comparing our lives to. The Bible says in James, the second chapter. When you get there, please say amen. amen. The Bible says in James chapter 2, notice what the Bible says in verse 8. The Bible says in James chapter 2 and verse 8, If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. But if ye have respect to persons, you commit sin and are convicted of the law as what? Transgressors. It says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in how many points? In one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, do not, do not commit adultery, said also, Do not kill. Now, if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. Now, what law is being discussed here? It's the Ten Commandments. Amen? Now, watch how James is speaking still in context of that law now that we go to verse 12. So speak ye and so do as they that shall be what? Judged by the law of liberty. So that when the high priest went into the most holy place, what's inside of the most holy place? It's the ark. What's inside of the ark? The Ten Commandments. What's going on in the most holy place? It is a time of? Judgment. So therefore, the standard that God is using that you and I are to examine and compare our lives to is none other than God's holy law of the Ten Commandments. Are you following? Now let's go to Ecclesiastes 12 and let's get one from the Old Testament. Notice what the Bible says here. in Ecclesiastes, the 12th chapter. Let's see what the Bible says here. One from the Old, one from the New. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, we see that the Bible brings this out more and more and more and more and more. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, if you're there, say amen. Amen. Now, in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, look at verse 13 and 14. It's almost just too clear. I mean, there's no reason for us to miss it. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14, it says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. It says, fear God and do what? Keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man verse 14 it says for God shall bring how many works every work what work is he talking about whether we're keeping his commandments that's the context God shall bring every work into what judgment whether every with every secret thing whether it be good or whether it be evil and this whole therefore brothers and sisters we need to understand that we are living in a time right now where God says we are living in the antitypical day of atonement. And the same way that the children of Israel were to afflict their souls to seek the right way, they had to examine themselves and make sure that their lives are in harmony with God going the right way. And what they were supposed to use as a standard to know if they're going in the good path or the bad path was none other than the law of God. Now, notice what the Bible says in John the 15th chapter, and I want you to see how these two tie in together. Notice what the Bible says in John 15. In John the 15th chapter, I want you to see what the Bible says. Because there are so many individuals today that will say, well, you know, all right, I got to go ahead and compare my life to the law of God. I got to see if my life is in harmony with the law of God. Because remember, the great work in the most holy place is not just to forgive sins, not just to cover sins, but to do what? completely blot them out. Is that right? And to completely blot the sins out means that God's people have entered into an experience where they have victory over sin. Amen? And that victory over sin will be manifested in their lives by walking on earth just like Jesus. You want to know how Jesus walked on the earth? The Bible says in Hebrews 4.15 that he was tempted in all points but was without sin. That is the highest manifestation, the highest revelation that you can give of Jesus Christ on this earth. Did you know that? The greatest revelation that you can give of Jesus Christ is that no matter how many points you and I are tempted by, we will not sin because we love Jesus. You know, I always tell people, love makes it easy. Oh, how can I stop sinning? How can I stop doing the thing that breaks Jesus' heart? Brothers and sisters, love makes it easy. Four words. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Love is what will enable you to do that. We'll talk more about that in Offer an Offering Made by Fire. But here it is that the Bible shows us something now about Jesus in John 15. Notice what it says in John 15. In John the 15th chapter, the Bible says in verse 10, talking about Jesus now, it says in John 15 in verse 10, it says, If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have done what? I have kept my father's commandments and what? Abide in his love. Did Jesus keep his father's commandments? Yes, he did. Are we being judged by the law of God? Yes, we are. So, the best way that I can know is if my life is in line with God and his law is that my life must perfectly reflect the lovely image of Jesus. Because Jesus says, I kept my father's commandments. So therefore, as he walked on this earth, the mission is that we may walk as he walked, first John two six. So as we can walk as Jesus walked, and we can keep God's commandments, brothers and sisters, then the mission has been accomplished, and Christ can say, Now I see myself and my people. I always tell people that Jesus is coming back for a bunch of mirrors. And he's not coming back for dirty mirrors. He's coming back, brothers and sisters, for mirrors where he can see a perfect reflection of himself. That's what Jesus is coming back for. Brothers and sisters, I don't know about you. I want to reflect that lovely image. You know how long I've been reflecting the image of Satan? The majority of my life, brothers and sisters, I served Satan. I, I, was, I was showing his image. And I praise God every day that he's even given me an opportunity to reflect the lovely image of Jesus. And I want to take advantage of every day and every opportunity. Amen. And so it is that we find that the great standard in this judgment is the law of God as lived out through the life of Jesus Christ. Now, with that understanding, brothers and sisters, we must understand something very, very important as we look at the law of God. Now, what's commandment number one? (laughs) Thou shalt have no other gods before me. What's commandment number two? (laughs) Shall not make unto thee any graven images. Don't bow down to them. Don't worship them. Commandment number three. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. All right. Commandment number four. Amen. Commandment number five. Honor thy father and thy mother. Commandment number six. Thou shalt not kill. Commandment number seven. Commandment number eight. Commandment number nine. And commandment number ten. Now, someone may say, Brother Lemon, why would you even spend time with us going over a study about the Ten Commandments when we clearly have shown you we know it? You want to know why? Go to Isaiah 42. In Isaiah, the 42nd chapter, I'll show you why. There was something necessary that Jesus in his mission had to do. So that he could let individuals not be deceived by their own hearts. You remember that Jeremiah 17 and verse 9, the Bible says that the heart is deceitful, above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? So so God wants us to understand that our hearts are deceitful. Do you know that we can honestly think we're something that we're not? How do we know that? How do we know that? Revelation chapter 3, Laodicea. Because thou sayest that I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. So God says, look at you, you think you're all right when in fact you're all wrong. He says, Thou sayest that you think you're rich and increase with good, have need of nothing. When the truth is we are wretched, we are miserable, we are poor, we are blind, and we are naked. That's the truth. And the sooner you and I can accept that truth, is the sooner we can be healed. The more that we keep saying, I'm all right, the more that we keep saying, I don't really, I'm not that bad. Brothers and sisters, you're not bad, you're wicked. I'm not bad I'm wicked if I am left to my own heart brothers and sisters I am desperately wicked there's nothing about my feelings there's nothing about my natural rationale that is trustworthy God says your heart and my heart is deceitful above all things and I wondered I said Lord could could Satan be included in those things Could my heart be more of a deceptive agent than even Satan himself? The Bible says our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That's God's description of us. Can you accept that? You see, that's the great problem in Seventh-day Adventism is many of us are struggling to accept that. We say, wait a minute, I own a Mercedes Benz. What you talking about? No, 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 no. When I look at my bank account, I see six and seven figures. What you talking about? Listen, I, when, I, when, I, when, I, when I stand on pulpits and I preach, people listen to me. What do you mean that I'm wretched? God says, yes, that's exactly what you are. And those possessions are, in many cases, thank God not all. There's nothing wrong with having these type of vehicles and different things. But brothers and sisters, there are many individuals who think more of themselves as a result of owning these things. God says, when you fall into that trap, he says, you are most Wretched most miserable desperately blind and so it is that while we are professing to be a bunch of commandment keepers i want to show you something that jesus had to do with even the pharisees of his day that i believe by the grace of god today i'm going to have to do with you and i today bible says in isaiah 42 in verse 21 and if you're there please say amen The Bible says in Isaiah 42, 21, it says, The Lord is well pleased for what? His righteousness sake. And it says, He will do what? Magnify the law and make it honorable. So that when Jesus came on His mission, He understood that there was going to be a need to go to a whole bunch of Pharisee law-keeping brothers and magnify the law and help them really see how beautiful and sweet it is and help them to see how much their lives were not in harmony with it as they thought. And when Jesus did it, he did not do it to condemn, he did it so that their eyes may be open, and they too would see their need to accept the savior. And so it is brothers and sisters, go to Psalm 119 and let me show you something here. There's something we need to understand about God's commandments. In Psalm the 119th division, I want you to see what the Bible says, about God's commandments because this is the great standard in the judgment right now. This is what God is comparing our lives to. He wants to make sure that our lives are in harmony with his law because if our lives are in harmony with the law, then brothers and sisters, we now have victory over sin. And because we have victory over sin, Christ can save us because his whole mission was to save us from sin, not in sin. So notice now what the Bible says in Psalm 119.96. Something about God's law that I thought was very powerful. Psalm one nineteen. And verse 96, if you're there, say amen. amen. Now, in Psalm one nineteen ninety six, the Bible says this. I have seen an end of how much? All perfection, but thy commandment is exceeding what? Broad. So therefore, the Bible makes it very clear that God's commandments are very broad. They are very deep. Now, what's an example where Jesus showed this broadness and magnified the law of God? Where would we find even an example like that? Let's go to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew the 5th chapter, you remember Jesus. He's dialoguing with these brothers and here it is that they think they're all right. They think that they're keeping God's law. They think they're keeping the commandments. And I want you to see how Jesus had to magnify the law to help them understand something. You know, often when you talk with Seventh-day Adventists, you say, well, God has called us to keep the Sabbath holy. And is that true? Amen. Amen. And then sometime, I remember I was at one church and I, and, I, and I was asking them, I said, how many of you are remembering the Sabbath day? And then they said, you know, several people raised their hands. Then I said, how many of you are remembering the Sabbath day to keep it holy? You see, that's the difference between what Rome put and what God put. Rome said, remember the Sabbath day. God said, no, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Two big differences. Rome says, all you got to do is just do a bunch of deeds and a bunch of works and do a bunch of observances and different accolades and expressions and all these different things, and you're all right. But God says, no, I never called people to remember the Sabbath day. God said, I've always called people to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And when I compare that with Desire of Ages, page 283, it says, in order for one to keep the Sabbath holy, one must himself be holy. Perhaps that's one of the reasons why we struggle so much. Remembering the Sabbath day to keep it holy, keeping our conversation straight and keeping our actions straight and all these other things. Is because brothers and sisters, if you and I think that we can have a holy expression with God one day a week, that's exactly what we are. A weak Christian. God wants us to understand that if we're going to try to enter into holiness, you can't do that one day a week. The Sabbath is a weekly reminder of what you and I are supposed to be every single day, brothers and sisters. Holy people. Holy people. And so it is that Christ, he saw it necessary to magnify the law so that he could help the people really see, are you really in line or are you not? Now notice how the Bible expresses this in Matthew 5. You know this story very, very well, I'm sure. Matthew, the fifth chapter, notice what the Bible says in verse 27. The Bible says in Matthew 5 in verse 27. In fact, I don't want to go to that one yet. I don't want to go to that one yet. The Bible says in Matthew 5. Well, I guess we can go there in just a moment. You'll remember, brothers and sisters, that when Jesus came to the Pharisees, he made it clear on two points of the commandments. He talked about the seventh. We're not going to go there yet. But he did talk about the sixth commandment. What's the sixth commandment? What is it? Okay, thou shalt not kill. You remember when Jesus said thou shalt not kill and then he told them, he said, listen, I'm telling you, you know, though the law, the law says thou shalt not kill. But he says, but if you hate your brother without a cause, he says, you're already a murderer. That's when he magnified the law. Is that right? Now, with that being understood, brothers and sisters, you and I need to understand that there's some things that God needs to magnify to help us really search ourselves. So what we're going to do is we're going to just take a few magnifying moments. Is that all right? We're going to take a few magnifying moments because the purpose of the magnifying moments, is it to condemn? No, brothers and sisters, it's not to condemn. The purpose of these magnifying moments is that we might truly examine ourselves and see, Lord, is my life in line with your holy law? Now, what is commandment number three? Commandment number three is thou shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Now, if somebody were to ask you, well, what does that mean? How would you help them understand that? You see, that's what we need to do. We need to go from the theory, and then we need to make it practical. Is that right? Now, I want to show you something that inspiration helps us to see. And let's go ahead and let's take a look at this. Commandment number three. It says, burning words of passion should never be spoken, for in the sight of God and holy angels, they are as a species of what? Swearing. You ever got mad before and you started to speak burning words of passion? You ever ever met people, I remember when I first got baptized into the church many years ago, 19 years ago, and I remember I got baptized and some of the brothers, they would not use curse words so they made up their own. They would express it with the same force, they would express it with the same emotion, with the same passion. And they would express all these different things and they honestly thought it was alright. Me as a worldling coming out of the world into the church, coming from all this corruption in the world, even in my so incredibly unsanctified mind I said to myself, you know that just can't be right. It just sounds too close to the real thing. But it seems like God's people, we're constantly like those cities around Sodom. You know, those cities around Sodom also got burnt up because of proximity. They were too close to the real thing. There are many of us today that we are trying to see how close can I get to the sin without actually sinning. That testifies that we need conversion. When you and I are truly converted, when Jesus becomes the lover of our souls, brothers and sisters, we will never feel how close can I get to the sin. We will always inquire how far away can I stay from it. Because when you love somebody, you never want to hurt them. I remember somebody asked me, they said, do you, do you, do you ever wonder? There's an elder, man, I remember this. There was an elder who was cheating on his wife. And he came to me and he said, hey, he says, you know, do, do, have you ever done that? I said, brother, absolutely not. <laughs> and then he says, do, you, you don't ever wonder what it would be like to be with somebody else? I said, are you out of your mind? I said, do you know what I have? In other words, he, he was totally disconnected. Obviously, his marriage was not in the place where it should have been under God's, under God's love and glory. But brothers and sisters, when you love somebody, it's the last thing on your mind to try to do anything to hurt them. I'm t- love makes it easy. Brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, love makes it easy. It says burning words of passion should never be spoken for in the sight of God and holy angels, they are as a species of swearing. This commandment not only prohibits false oaths, but it also says and common swearing, but it forbids us to use the name of God in a what light or careless manner without regard to its awful significance. Do you know how many times people just say, oh my. And they say it for almost any reason under the sun. They will use it when they're playing sports. They will use God's name when they're talking with friends and they're talking about some joke. They will use it in almost any shape, form, or size. And in the eyes of God, God says, it's just as if you would have done the real thing. When we begin to use God's names and titles in such a way, brothers and sisters, that it becomes common... This is one of the ways that God begins to lose that special place in our minds and in our hearts. When we start saying Jesus's name attached to every little activity of life, brothers and sisters, this becomes a form of using God's name in vain. Do you remember when Jesus said, don't pray like the heathen who keeps repeating himself over and over and over and over and over again? Listen to this. Watch this. By the thoughtless. Oh, hold on. Let's go on. It says, by the thoughtless mention of God in common conversation, by appeals to him in trivial matters. In other words, when when the, when the term, Lord, help us. When God gave that term, I think about people like Peter who was on that water and he knew that he was sinking as a result of taking his eyes off of Jesus. And he just said, Jesus, save me. Jesus, help me. That was a sincere heart's cry for salvation from death. It was a very special thing that, that Peter was expressing because he recognized Christ as the only one who could have delivered him from that dilemma. Do you know how many people will say, Lord, help us, but they're saying it in the most common conversations today? They will say things like, Lord, have mercy. When these were the most solemn prayers of the most penitent in the Bible? Today, individuals will say, Lord, have mercy for almost anything, brothers and sisters. Do you know that God says that that's a violation of my commandments? That's a sin. God says that's a sin. And God wants us to understand this because he does not want to be deceived. He does not want us to go around following and believing that we're all right when perhaps we're all wrong. He says, by the thoughtless mention of God in common conversation, by appeals to him in trivial manners, and look at this, and by the frequent and thoughtless repetition of his name, we dishonor him. Holy and reverend is his name. All should meditate upon his majesty, his purity and holiness, that the heart may be impressed with a sense of his exalted character, and his holy name should be uttered with reverence and solemnity. We should be very careful, brothers and sisters, how we call out the name of Jesus. We should be very careful about how we call out God and Lord and all these different things. God says, listen, be mindful. Holy and reverend is my name. That's why we shouldn't call people reverence. Holy and reverend is my name, God says. And brothers and sisters, we would do well. That when we approach God and when we are around others, remember the purpose of Holy Convocation is to edify and build. Let us not be amongst one another and just call out the Lord's name for any old reason. Amen? Amen. Well, what about commandment number seven? Now, commandment number seven says thou shall not commit adultery. Let's go to Matthew chapter five. Now, now we can take a look at it. Matthew five. Matthew five. In Matthew chapter five, I want you to see what the Bible says. You know, in Matthew 5, Jesus, you know, I love Jesus, boy. I tell you, he, he makes things plain. And the thing that's sweet is, is again, you know, <laughs> brothers and sisters, we got to get over this thing. I'm serious. And, you know, sometimes it seems like people are so afraid to call sin by its right name. And brothers and sisters, that, that ought not be. If we understood the plan of salvation right, which the sanctuary makes clear to us, we should understand that the sanctuary clearly teaches that God cannot save people in sin. He only saves people from sin. Amen? Which means that he got to get them to a point that they stop doing the thing that caused a fresh crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Amen? Now, understanding that, God therefore says, I'm going to call sin by its right name so that you can clearly see what it is. This is why I don't like it when people say, oh, you know, there was a time the Seventh-day Adventist church used to have a position on jewelry. There's a time we used to believe those things. But now, all of a sudden, we got all these shades of gray. Now all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, we we don't really know. And this is why nowadays, brothers, I remember times I used to be able to come to a seven-day Adventist church and as soon as I saw the jewelry, I said, oh, praise the Lord, there's a visitor here. I said, praise God, there's a visitor here. You know? And then one day you shake the person's hands and they say, oh, yes, I'm the the deacon and I'm the usher and I'm, I'm the... I'm like, what? And the truth of the matter is is that we have not become wiser. You know, brothers and sisters... I'd love to talk more about that church manual. But I'm going, to t- I'm going to say at least this much. The church manual in 1945, if you and I read the church manual of 1945, do you know that of the 16 million seven-day Adventists we have today, we probably would only have a few hundred thousand? When you read that 1945 uh, 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 church manual, you will see that God's standards were so high that not any, any and everybody could join. And that was not an, an attempt to try to be some sectarian type of group to, to make us feel special. We just understood God's standard and we understood what happens when you drop the standard just to win people. It doesn't convert them. All they do is they come in and they're like the mixed multitude leading Israel into sin. And so it is that you'll find... That if we were to look at those standards, we would start seeing, man, it seems like so many things have changed. And today people feel like, you know what, we don't want to call sin by its right name. If we do that, we're not demonstrating the love of Jesus. I actually had a minister tell me that I was given a message on repentance, true repentance. And as I was given the message on true repentance, the minister came to me and he says, listen, why do you keep talking about sin and, 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 and calling people into repentance? Why can't you just talk about the love of Jesus? That's what he asked me. I said, sir, I thought I was just doing that. He said, no, no, no. You keep calling people into repentance. And the only way you can call people into repentance is you have to identify sins so they know what they're repenting from. He says, no, you're calling people into repentance. You're calling people sins and all these different things. Why can't you tell them about the love of Jesus? I said, I just told you that's already what I was telling them. They said, that's not true. I said, then you explain Revelation chapter 3. Go to Revelation chapter 3. In Revelation chapter 3, keep your finger on Matthew 5. I said, minister, you tell me this. In Revelation chapter 3, I have to make a choice. Either I believe you or I believe Jesus. I said, you got got to tell me. I want your advice. Who should I listen to? And I said, in Revelation, the third chapter, notice what the Bible says in Revelation chapter 3. Jesus says in verse 19, as many as I love. Did he say as many as I hate? He said, as many as I love. What does he do? I rebuke. I rebuke and chasten, And then what does he say? Be zealous therefore and repent. I said, according to the Bible, brother, I said I was preaching the love of Jesus. I said, now my question to you is what are you preaching? And we had to have a dialogue. We was in his office and we were talking about it. And I believe in respecting our ministers, even when they're wrong. There's never a place to be rude and crass and obnoxious and ungodly. Never, never absolutely no reason to. We are to maintain our Christianity under all circumstances, but brothers and sisters, we can't be so overwhelmed and so over-concerned with, oh, oh what's going to happen to my ministry and what's going to happen to this and what's going to happen to that? Let me, let me, let me be abstract. Let me, let me not really call sin by its right name when the greatest want of the world is men who will call sin by its right name. See, the issue is not calling sin by its right name. The issue is when individuals call out sin with the spirit of condemnation. That's the issue. If a minister really loves people, brothers and sisters, he wants to show you the things. You know, Brother Gregory, a little earlier, did he did he did he talk about face to face communion with God? Did he talk about that? Now, is there a hymn that says face to face? Shall I behold him? Brothers and sisters, do you know that according to the Bible, there's only one thing that caused God to turn his face from us? It's in Isaiah 59 and verse 2. It says, your sins have caused me to turn my face from you that I will not hear. So brothers and sisters, if God wants to have face to face with us, if we want face to face with him, then we must identify the thing that caused him to turn his face from us so that we can see it, we can confess it, forsake it, and overcome it by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's why sin has to be pointed out. And so it is that in Matthew chapter 5, we're in back in Matthew 5. In Matthew 5, notice what the Bible says. Matthew 5, and we're going to look at verse 27. Verse 27. And I want you to see what the Bible says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 27. If you're there, say amen. Amen. The Bible says in Matthew 5, 27, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her, what has he done? The Bible says he has already committed adultery with her where? In his heart. Is that right? Now, brothers and sisters, what we need to understand is that Jesus gave a perfect example of what we're doing right now. He magnified the law. There are individuals today, brothers and sisters, that as far as they're concerned, they can look and they can lust. Now, brothers, I need to talk to you. Jesus has made it clear to you and I as men. He says that if we look upon a woman to lust after her, we have already committed adultery. Now, the reason why this becomes very important is because sometimes brothers will say, well, you know, um, because she was dressed in such a way or because this, that, and the other, I had to look. No, brothers and sisters, you want to know why? You just need to do what Job did. Go to Job 31. In Job 31, this is what Job did. And I say this especially to our young men. In Job, the 31st chapter, notice what the Bible says. Brothers and sisters, there's another covenant that we need to make. There's a covenant that we need to make, and I want you to see what covenant the Bible talks about. And this is especially for our brothers. The Bible says in Job, the 31st chapter, and when you get there, let me know by saying amen. 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 The Bible says in Job 31 and verse 1, it says, I made a covenant with what? With mine eyes. He says, why then should I think upon a maid? Job said, "I have made a covenant with my eyes." In our paraphrase, that I would not look upon a woman lustfully. You see, when you and I see someone walk by, even if they're inappropriately dressed, brothers, we may see it. But God says, "Remember the covenant with your eyes." So immediately we see it, but we turn away, and we begin, we, we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Amen. Now, the problem with many of the brothers today is that they got this neck issue. It seems like when somebody walks by, the brother just, you know what I'm talking about? That's the issue. You see, when you and I begin doing the neck problem, when we start doing that thing, this is where we have crossed the path of temptation. Now we are lusting. Now we're gawking and we're gazing and we're fixing our eyes upon it. And when we get to that point, brothers and sisters, you know, in fact, what inspiration tells us, and you're about to see it, when an individual begins to look upon a woman in such a lustful manner that the only thing that's stopping him is the opportunity. In other words, when a man gets to a point where he says, if I could, I would. Once that thought settles in your mind, you have just crossed the path from temptation and now you've just sinned and you are an adulterer. Once it gets to a point that the only thing stopping you is, man, I I just wish that there was a way that nobody could find out. Once those thoughts start to settle in the mind, in the words of Christ, he says, now you're lusting. And he says, and if you lust after that woman, he says, now you have committed sin. But sisters... We need to talk. (laughs) If God will condemn the man who looks upon a woman lustfully, make no mistake about it that God will condemn the woman who dresses in a manner that causes men to look at her lustfully. And this is why today, brothers and sisters, fashion is one of the greatest challenges for our dear sisters. Do you know that fashion is such a possessing force that when we typically think about problems in the church, and we th- if somebody were to ask you, what is it that causes the greatest separation between us and God? You know, people talk about, oh, the apostasy of the spiritualism and all the contemplative prayers. Yes, that's an evil force. I agree. Oh, it must be the apostasy where they say there's no sanctuary. Yes, I believe that that's causing a great separation. But do you want to know what's the most powerful thing that's causing a separation between God and his people right now? I quote Volume 4 the Testimonies to the Church, page 647. I am quoting Obedience to fashion is pervading our seventh-day Adventist churches, and is doing more than any other power to separate our people from God End quote. Now some people might say that, oh, that's the opinion of a little old lady from the 1800s with a third grade education. But you know what I say? I say that was the testimony of Jesus. And if you love Jesus, brothers and sisters, you want to pay attention to what He says. Jesus said, "Obedience to fashion is pervading our Seventh Day Adventist churches, and is doing more than any other power to separate our people from God." You know, ladies, we talk about the sanctuary. Is that right? And I want to show you something. I want to show you something. I want you to think about this. Does does the Bible? I see. It. Does the Bible call the body a temple? Was was another term for the sanctuary a temple? Did we learn in the last session that at one minute it was a sanctuary, but then they built Solomon's temple? Is that right? But it was still the sanctuary. Now, watch this. Is the body a temple? Yes. Now, if we were to look at the body, what would we compare our body to as it relates to the sanctuary? Would we compare it to the holy place or would we see more of a correlation with the most holy place? You know I believe? I believe that I could see a comparison more to the most holy place. Can I tell you why? Number one, who was in the most holy place? What was in the most holy place? It was called a something glory. That's Shekinah. It was the very presence of God. Amen? Now, did God say that his very presence is going to be in you, you and I? Yes, through the Holy Ghost. Is that right? Now, watch this. What was in the most holy place? The ark. What was inside of the ark? The law of God. What did God say he was going to write on our foreheads? The law of God. Is that right? He says, I'm going to write my law in your heart. And the word heart means mind. So therefore, our bodies can be a very symbolic figure of even the most holy place. Now watch this. This is when you can take the sanctuary and make it absolutely practical. The common man, was he allowed to see any particular of the, of the most holy place? What would happen to the common man if he were to see any particular of the most holy place? He would die. Sisters, do you not know that the common brother on the street has no right to know what your most holy place looks like? The common brother on the street should not know what your legs, your thighs, and cleavage, and all this other stuff. That was a secret chamber that only belonged to the high priest. But brothers and sisters, it gets deeper than that. Watch this. Who was the individual that was allowed in the most holy place? Was it the priest or was it the high priest? high priest? It was the high priest. So what would happen if the common priest just wanted to assert himself and go in the most holy place? He would die. Sisters, you need to understand that 1 Peter 2.9 says that everybody in this holy convocation right now is a royal priesthood. Even the very Seventh-day Adventist priesthood brother has no right to see what your most holy place looks like. It is a shame when we come to church and the brothers in the church can go ahead and see the secret in the most holy place. You know the only person who has a right to see inside the most holy place? That was that high priest. I wonder who a high priest could be. You see, you know what, sisters? You want to know what that high priest could be? Oh, sisters, I want you to understand, you are so precious. I'm serious, you are so incredibly precious to God. If you can grasp this, God says all he wants to do is just take you higher. Do you know that when that common priest in the church begins to rightly and biblically court you. And then when he courts you and he gets to a point that he sees and the parents see and everyone sees that you're now ready for marriage, when that common priest goes ahead and gets to a point that he asks your hand in marriage, and when that common priest and yourself go walk down that aisle together and you're walking down that aisle and now the minister says that you can go ahead and he gives the pledges and you say, I do, and I do, guess what just happened? Once you say, I do, and he says, I do, that common priest has just graduated and became a high priest. And that high priest has every right to see inside the most holy place. Sisters, you got to understand, your bodies are very special. God never wanted common men in the church and in the world to know what the particulars of your body looks like. You need to have a higher level of respect for yourself. I'm sorry to say it, but I'm telling you the truth. It clearly testifies of one's respect for their own body when they can wear skirts already above their knees and then when they sit down, it's even higher and individuals can see right up their legs. Sisters, you're not showing respect. I promise you, men respond to advertisements. And what you advertise is typically the response that you will get. If you want a man to respect you for the wonderful mind that God gave you, if you want a man to respect you for your godly character, then you must do what the book of education says. Let your dress reveal what character you have. Do you know that inspiration says our very dress testifies to what character we have? You got to learn to love Jesus to the point that you'll cover thy nakedness. That you might glorify him. Why? Because this issue of adultery, brothers and sisters, is the sin of the day. It is killing Seventh-day Adventists. And it is affecting Seventh-day Adventism. And brothers and sisters, we must understand that this is a gross sin that we must keep in check. And so it is that I want you to see. It says, This commandment forbids not only acts of impurity, but sensual thoughts and desires. I'm showing you our inspiration. Just said everything I just said. Sinful thoughts, sensual thoughts and desires, or any practice that tends to excite them. Purity is demanded not only in the outward life, but in the secret intents and emotions of the heart. Now, it says, So long as life shall last... There will be need of guarding the affections and the passions with a firm purpose. Not one moment can we be secure except as we rely upon God, the life hidden with Christ. I'm sorry to say it, brothers and sisters, but there are many Seventh-day Adventists who are professing to keep the fourth commandment while they're breaking the seventh. And And what the Bible and spirit of prophecy is trying to show us is that we can break the seventh commandment without ever actually touching another person. You and I can violate it by how we dress. You and I can violate it, brothers and sisters, by the thoughts we entertain in our mind. And God wants us to understand that he wants us to have victory over sin, not just in actions, but even in thoughts, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing it into captivity, even our thoughts to the obedience of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, 1 through 5. God says, I can even collect your thoughts and make them obedient to my will. Brothers, you don't have to lust. Even though there are many who don't, ha- who don't practice dress reform. Sisters, you must understand that dress reform is not a trivial matter. Anyone who tells you that is a liar. Dress reform is dead serious. And brothers and sisters, God says, cover thy nakedness. Study the Bible. Find out what God calls nakedness. You'd be surprised. But sisters, remember, dress reform is something God gave to you, not to punish you, not to punish you. He gave it to you actually to preserve you, to actually preserve you. But then there's one last one. You remember commandment number eight? It says it demands. Commandment number eight is talking about thou shalt not steal. It says it demands strict integrity in the minutest details of the affairs of life. It forbids overreaching in trade and requires the payment of just debts or wages. Uh Uh-oh. Brothers and sisters, do you know that when you and I cognizantly and clearly in our minds create certain debts and we have the money in our bank accounts to pay them and we know it's a just debt and we don't pay it, do you know that heaven says thief in the records? You took advantage of the service? You and I took advantage of the product or whatever it is, and just because we changed our mind and we don't want it, doesn't mean we can give it back. We have earned and owned that debt, and if we have the money to pay it, and we choose not to because we got other priorities, according to the Bible and spirit of prophecy, we are thieves. Just debts and wages. That also includes wages. That means if you're a business owner. Or you're a manager and you're supposed to pay people. You don't hold back that money and say, well, when I get enough money, you're to pay them on time every time. The same way if you have a job, you want to get paid on time every time. Is that right? And so it says, it declares that every attempt to advantage oneself by the ignorance, weakness, or misfortune of another. That's why gambling is wrong. Gambling, the only way that you and I can earn or make money through gambling is we must earn it or win it at the misfortune of someone else. Gambling is a violation of the Eighth Commandment. It says, it declares that every attempt to advantage oneself by the ignorance, weakness, or misfortune of another is registered as fraud in the books of heaven. Now look at this. Oh, brothers and sisters, thou shalt not steal was written by the finger of God upon the tables of stone, yet how much underhand stealing of affection is practiced and excused. They got this thing called, uh, what do they call that thing when you, when you mess around with people at the job or at some place at school? It could be anywhere. What, flirting. Flirting. That's it. Flirting. <laughs> I praise God it was out of my mind. <laughs> flirting. Do you know that even flirting is a sin? Why? Because when you do it, you and I are stealing the affections of somebody else. We're making them think something that's not true. We're te- we're, it's funny. We actually break several commandments. And man, I can get into diet. Boy, I tell you, we can get into this thing. What God is trying to help us see is that we're all wrong when we think we're all right. And the reason why we bring these things out, again, not to condemn, brothers and sisters. That's not the mission. The mission is not to condemn. The mission is to open our eyes and help us to behold wondrous things out of thy law. Because once we can see this, you know what this does? This causes us to say, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And this was the work of John the Baptist to give the people the straight message and help them see that all of their so-called security was nothing but empty and pointless and there was no hope except in Jesus. And you know what's so beautiful, brothers and sisters? While inside of that most holy place that there was that law of God, you want to know what else was in there? I believe with all my heart that many of us perhaps have seen our sins on the screen today. Perhaps many of us have seen things about our lives and we say, Lord, have mercy, I didn't know this. I never looked at it like this. And remember, you're not condemned. Because condemnation only comes when light comes to us and we ignore it and turn away from it. But brothers and sisters, God doesn't condemn you. God just says, I just needed to make you see this so that you can come to me and let me be that Lamb of God that can take away not just the sin of the world, but I can take away your sins, even yours. And that's why, brothers and sisters, it's not just the law that was in that most holy place, but right above it, was a mercy seat. And you want to know what's so sweet? Let me give you two Bible verses and then we'll close. We'll close. I'll let you go. Go to the book of Genesis 19.19. 19. Oh boy, I tell you. Genesis 19.19. 19. When we look at Genesis 19.19, 19, God wants to show us something so beautiful right here, right now. In Genesis 19 and verse 19, I want you to see what the Bible says. Oh, yes, we must afflict our souls. We must examine ourselves. See if we're on the right way and the right path. And the only way we can do that is to look into that wonderful law of God as lived out through the life of Jesus Christ and find out is my life in harmony with that. And I believe many of us saw that our lives are not in harmony with that. But God says that's why there was a mercy seat. You see, in Genesis 19:19, 19, 19, notice what the Bible says. If you're there, say Amen. The Bible says, Behold now, thy servant hath found what? Grace in thy sight, and, that's, and thou hast magnified thy what? Mercy. mercy. It says, Which thou hast showed unto me in saving my life, and I cannot escape to the mountain, lest some evil take me and I die. So in this verse, we see that grace and mercy are what? Synonymous. Grace and mercy are synonymous. Amen? Now, go to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, notice what the Bible says in verse 142. Psalm 119, 142. I want to show you something that I thought was so sweet. I remember one time I was talking with a brother and he tried to tell me about how we don't have to worry about the law anymore because of grace. And he said, law and grace don't go together at all. And I said, is that right? And I took him through this little study and I want you to see what I showed him. The Bible says in Psalm 119, 142. If you're there, say Amen. The Bible says in Psalm 119, 142, Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and thy law is truth. So in Genesis nineteen nineteen, we see that grace and mercy are synonymous. Amen? And then we see in Psalm 119, that thy law is truth. Amen? Now, our last verse, Psalm 61, 7. I forgot there was one more. Psalm 61, 7. In Psalm 61, in verse 7, I want you to see what the Bible says. In Psalm 61 and verse 7, the Bible says, He shall abide before God forever. Oh, prepare what? Amen. Mercy, which is synonymous to what? Grace. grace. And it says, and truth, which is synonymous to what? Law. law. So what, look, what, what is it that law and grace do together? It says, which may preserve him. Brothers and sisters, right inside of the most holy place, you find law and grace. The law of God in the ark, the mercy seat above the ark. And it is the combination of law and grace combined that is going to help God's people and preserve them from going back into their sinful ways and sinful practices. And this is the great work that Christ wants to accomplish in all of us. And brothers and sisters, this is why. When Jesus says, I have kept my father's commandments... He's not just telling you what he did, but he's trying to tell you and I what he'll do through us. He's saying that I have combined law and grace, and I am going to let that law and grace be so real in yours and my life that I'm going to show you how you can live up to my holy law because I'm going to live out my life within you. And that's why I love that wonderful hymn that says, Live out thy life within me. And so it is, brothers and sisters, if you see today, as we have seen the law of God magnified right before our eyes, if we can see today and say, Lord, have mercy upon me, truly a sinner. And I need thy saving grace. And show me how through law and grace you can preserve my life so that I will not go back into the things that break your heart. I want to invite you to stand to your feet. You know, brothers and sisters, God's doing something special at these meetings. God is doing something so special at these meetings. He is changing our hearts and changing our lives. He's showing us how our lives can be in such complete harmony with him. And brothers and sisters, as Brother Gregory and others mentioned, abide in Christ. Stick close to him. This is how you can not only have victory. When we finish praying, brothers and sisters, I want you to understand your slate is clean. Your slate is clean. You might have discovered some stains on your record. As we went through that screen, but when we finish with this prayer in these few moments, do you understand that your slate is going to be clean before God? And there's only going to be one more thing that you need to do. Abide in him. Abide in him so that not only can you be clean, but by his grace you can stay clean. Let us pray. Father in heaven, Lord, you've opened our eyes. You've helped us to behold wondrous things out of thy law. And I'm so grateful that you taught us these things, not to condemn us, but because you know that there's only one thing that caused you to turn your face from us, and that is sin. And so you must reveal our sins to us so that we can see it clearly and see no escape, except we come to the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And so, Lord, we come asking you to please forgive us for our sins, to truly cleanse us and wash us, From all of these things, Lord God, that we have done and broken the heart of Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you may give us wisdom, even to number our days. and That as we go forward, that we will abide in thee. And let truly not our will, but thy will be done. We praise you and thank you so much for the forgiveness of our sins. We thank you that our lives can be covered with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we now just pray, help us to cooperate with you in this final work so that you may not just forgive and cover, but that you may blot our sins out, that we will never go back to them again. Thank you, Lord, for hearing and answering this prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. This message is produced by PTH Ministries. Our mission is to spread the three angels' messages through preaching and teaching the Seventh-day Adventist message and to integrate healing through medical missionary work in declaring the gospel. For more information on our ministry and the resources we provide, please log on to our website at www.pthministries.com. That's www.pthministries.com. Or you can call us at 770-274-9537. That's 770 274 9537. May we do our part to meet the needs of humanity through the everlasting gospel and hasten Christ's return. Maranatha.